Yeah, let's take our Bibles this evening. <clears throat> Turn to Acts chapter 23 this evening. <clears throat> Acts 23. We're actually going to start our reading from verse 30 of chapter 22. <clears throat> so Acts 22 verse 30. It says, On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews. He loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, Thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And though it stood by, said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had said, uh, sorry, when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dis- dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And let's open a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we <clears throat> thank you once again for this opportunity to be here in this place, uh, to come and to spend time singing praises to your name and to spend some time around your holy word. And we pray, Lord, that this evening you would uh, teach us, that you would instruct us uh, through the passage before us, that, Lord, you would Give me wisdom and guidance to speak, that it would be your words and your thoughts. And that, Lord, we would leave this place being refreshed and, and blessed through your word and singing your praises. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, last Sunday evening, we looked at Acts 22, the last part there, and we saw uh, Paul was brought into the castle and he was about to be uh, interrogated. He was about to be scourged when he informed the Romans that he was a Roman citizen. And so having discovered that Paul is a Roman citizen, the captain now has two serious problems that he needs to deal with quickly. And the first is that he needs to let Paul know what the official charges are. You see, Paul as a Roman citizen has a right to know what he's been charged with. And so he needs to find out quickly what these charges are so he can inform Paul and do the right thing by him. But secondly, he needed to know himself what the charges were 
so he could put it on his records and also so he can inform his superiors. Because, of course, if he doesn't inform his superiors of what Paul has been charged with, he himself is going to be in serious trouble, isn't he? He's going to be in serious trouble for arresting a Roman citizen without just cause. And so he's convinced that Paul must be guilty of something. I mean, why else would the Jews be so upset with him? Why else would they be crying out for Paul to be put to death? He's convinced he must have done something wrong. But up until now, nobody has been able to tell him what it is. No one's been able to give him a straight answer. And he can't interrogate Paul. And so what he decides to do is he decides that the best course of action is to set him before the Sanhedrin. That's what we saw in verse 30 there. It says, On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And so he decides he's going to bring him before the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews. We've mentioned it before, but the Sanhedrin was this supreme council of the Jews. It consisted of 70 members made up of the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And over it, presiding over it, was the high priest. And it was their responsibility to interpret the law and to apply the law. You know, to apply the law to um, the affairs of the nation, but also when someone violated that law, to try them, to convict them of their crime. And so therefore Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin so that they might question him and get to the bottom of it all, find out exactly what it is that he's charged with. And we can view this passage here as sort of a a pre-trial hearing. It's not really a trial, it's more of a a pre-trial hearing where the, the evidence is going to be weighed and, and a decision made if Paul has something to answer for. And this evening we, wanted to be, we want to begin to consider this pre-trial hearing before the Sanhedrin. I say begin because we're not going to get through it all this evening. And first of all here this evening we see, that we see Paul's bold assertion. We see Paul's bold assertion. Uh, look in verse 1 with me. It says, And Paul earnestly... Beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now Luke here begins his account of these events with Paul addressing the council. That's how he starts out. He just says, and Paul. Earnestly beholding the council. He starts out with Paul addressing this council. But it's likely that Luke here is just giving us a, a, a summary, if you like a shortened version of the events that actually take place here. You see, it's likely that more has been said before Paul is given a chance to speak. It's likely that before this, there's, there's been a, a discussion about exactly what happened in the temple and a discussion about uh, what it is that he's supposedly guilty of before Paul is given a chance to speak. And the reason would be that Luke doesn't include it is he doesn't need to, does he? He's just told us. In chapter 21, it'll be going over the same things all over again. And so instead of talking about those things again, he jumps straight into Paul's address here to the council. And Paul here begins by politely addressing them. Uh, We've seen it before. He says, men and brethren. He politely addresses them. And then he makes this bold assertion. 
He says there in verse 1, he says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He says, I've lived in all good conscience until this day before God. The term have lived here means to live as a citizen. That's what it means. So he's saying, I've lived as a citizen with good conscience. Essentially, he's making the assertion that he was a loyal Jew who had lived as a good Jewish citizen. He'd not broken the law. He'd abided by the law and he had a good conscience that he'd done so before God. He says, my conscience is clear. Even though the Jews are condemning him, Paul's conscience didn't condemn him. Now, the term conscience is one that Paul speaks about often. It's one of his favorite words. He uses it twice in the book of Acts, but then he uses it 20 times in his letters. And so it is one of his favorite things to talk about. In chapter 24 and verse 16, we see the other time that he uses it. Acts 24 and verse 16 says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God, and toward men. Basically, he says the same idea. He said he's endeavored to live with a good conscience toward God and toward men. And this word conscience here means to know with oneself. And it's the idea of uh, that, that inner judge, isn't it? Okay, that judge within or that witness within that approves when we do right and disapproves when we do wrong. And of course, Romans chapter 2 speaks about the fact that our conscience bears witness that God's moral law is written on the hearts of men. Let's just go to Romans 2. <clears throat> Romans 2 and verse 15. <clears throat> Excuse me. Romans 2 verse 15 says, Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And so the, the conscience bears witness to the truth that God's law is written on the hearts of every man. But you know, that doesn't mean that the conscience can't be misled or that it can't be corrupted by the input of wrong information. You see, the conscience is not an infallible guide, is it? It's not an infallible guide. The conscience rather is, is uh, programmed and responds to the information that we put in. You know, a conscience can therefore brand a person guilty when in reality they're innocent. They just feel they're guilty. And the same could be true the other way around, that someone can feel they're innocent when in reality they're guilty based on their conscience, what they've been putting in. You see, a conscience can only act according to the instructions that it receives, and that's why it's not an infallible guide. You see, unlike God's revealed word, our conscience is changeable. It's changeable. And it changes based on our knowledge of the Word of God, doesn't it? The more we know the Word of God, the more our conscience is enlightened. You see, our conscience doesn't make the standards. It only applies the standards of the person, of whoever it might be, whether they're good or bad. It applies our own standards, doesn't it, to ourselves. And you see, this is how Paul is able to make this bold assertion here. This is how he's able to say, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day basically he says i've acted in all good conscience right throughout my life that's his declaration here now the commentator ironside he makes this statement 
He says, observe, he did not say, since I became a Christian. But he looked back over his whole life, his life as a Jew before he knew Christ, as well as his life as a Christian since he came to know Christ. And he makes the statement, I have lived with all good conscience before God until this day. Okay, so he's talking about his whole life. He's talking about before he got saved as well. And you might say, how can he say he lived with a good conscience when he persecuted the Christians? You see, the reason that he could say that is because of what I just said about what conscience is. It's based on what we put in. You see, Paul's conscience was clear even before his conversion because his understanding of right and wrong was distorted by wrong information, wasn't it? His understanding of right and wrong was distorted. You know, while he was persecuting the Christians, throwing them into prison and even having some of them put to death, Paul honestly believed he was doing the right thing. And so he could say, I did it with good conscience. He knew no better at the time. Being a zealous uh, Pharisee, he genuinely believed he was doing God a service, didn't he? He genuinely believed he was doing right. And it wasn't until Paul learned the truth, his conscience was enlightened, if you like, on the road to Damascus, that he saw his sin. And that's how he can make this declaration. My conscience is clear. I've lived with a good conscience right throughout my life. Now, this is why Paul could also say in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 13, he says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. It's the same idea. He says, I did it ignorantly. It was in unbelief. The point is, Paul wasn't persecuting the Christians going against his conscience going against what he knew to be true. He didn't know any better. And that's the point here. And so Paul did these things in ignorance. He did it with a clear conscience before God, before men. And it's important that we understand here, Paul's not claiming to be sinless. Okay, You need to understand the difference here. He's not claiming to be sinless in the matter. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that I have abided as a Jewish citizen according to the law with a good conscience. That's what he's trying to say here right throughout his life he was well aware that his actions before he got saved were sin he was well aware of that but as he says in philippians 3 verse 6 he was blameless before the law wasn't he just go over there philippians 3 just quickly philippians 3 and verse 6 in philippians 3 verse 6 he says concerning zeal persecuting the church touching the righteousness of which is in the law, blameless. Now, he, he lived a blameless life before the law, didn't he? He lived with good conscience. And the point was now also true after he got saved. You see, now that he had become a follower of Christ, he still was living with a clear conscience before God and the law. You see, Paul's enlightened conscience knew that there was nothing wrong with his faith in Christ. He knew that Christ and The Old Testament, they all go together. He knew that it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Clark writes this, he says, The apostle means, therefore, that there was no part of his life in which he acted as a dishonest or hypocritical man. And he was now as fully determined to maintain his profession of Christianity as he ever was to maintain that of Judaism. 
He says, I am completely clear with my conscience in being a Christian. It matches up with what I believe about the law. There's no conflict. And so he's saying here his conscience is clear. Right throughout his life, he has endeavored to live a life that's honest and without hypocrisy. That's his claim here. It's a bold claim. But that is what he's, he's saying, and that is what Paul has tried to do right throughout his life. Live with a good conscience before God. And that leads to our second point now this evening. We see the assault on Paul. Verse 2, it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Now, as we read on in verse 2, it becomes pretty clear that the high priest Ananias clearly didn't agree with Paul. He clearly didn't agree with Paul's assessment that he had lived in all good conscience before God. Ananias is, is so angry by what he hears that he commands those who stand closest to smite Paul on the mouth. Now the word smite here means to strike and it can be either with an implement like a rod or it can be with the hands. It can be either one. That's what it's talking about here. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ received similar treatment, didn't he, during his trial before the high priest. If you go to John chapter 18, verse 22. <clears throat> John 18, and verse 22. It says, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And here we see the, the same thing. Christ is before the high priest. They don't like his response, and the officer, standing closest, smites the Lord on the face. You know, once again, we see comparisons here, don't we, between Paul and the Savior. Right throughout this whole, this whole um, scenario here, we've seen Paul is suffering what Christ went through. And it's the same thing again. He's struck on the face because of what he says, because of his response. And this word smite here also in the Greek indicates that it's a repeated action. It's in the, the present tense. And so it's not just they, they hit him once, it's repeatedly. Repeatedly. The high priest orders for Paul to be repeatedly struck on the mouth. And you know, it leads to the question... What exactly about Paul's statement offended him so much? What is it about his statement that really gets him so upset? Well, it seems that Ananias views Paul's statement as being highly provocative. You see, Paul's claim to have a clear conscience, even now as a follower of Christ, strongly implied that the high priest and the rest of the council were guilty in rejecting the revelation of God when the Lord Jesus Christ came. That's really what he's saying here. My conscience is clear. I've been enlightened. I've had the truth revealed to me. You rejected the truth. And so by this statement, he's essentially accusing them of rejecting the truth and being unenlightened. Uh, the commentator Paul Hill writes, If Paul's life as a Christian left him in complete innocence before God, then the Sanhedrin members who did not share his commitment to Christ were the guilty parties. That's why the high priest is so upset, because basically he's saying, you're the ones who are in sin. I've got a clear conscience. You're the ones who are disobeying God. So Ananias here reacts in anger, ordering for, ordering for Paul to be struck on 
the mouth. You know, this, of course, was completely illegal and unjust. You know, Paul had not been tried yet. He had not been convicted of any crime. He had not been proven guilty. You know, certainly here in the Sanhedrin, of all places, one would expect to find honesty. One would expect to to find fairness. Paul didn't expect that from the Romans, sure. But surely in the midst of the Sanhedrin, these ones who were supposedly to uphold the law of God, he should find honesty and fairness. And that's why Paul now responds in anger. And that's what we see here thirdly this evening. We see Paul's angry response. Look in verse 3. It says, Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. Now, upon being smitten by those who are standing closest by, Paul responds with a spontaneous word of rebuke. He bursts out with this, this word of rebuke. He says, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. Now, Paul here is reacting to the miscarriage of justice. That's what he's doing. He's reacting to the miscarriage of justice and he responds or he reacts with anger. You know, he had yet to be tried by the law, let alone be found guilty of any crime. And therefore to be struck in such a manner was contrary to the spirit and the letter of the law of Almighty God. Just go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 where it talks about uh, people being found guilty and, and beaten. In Deuteronomy 25, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 1, it says, If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his faults by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him, and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother shall esteem vile unto him. The point is, if Paul was guilty, then it was fair enough for him to be struck. You know, to receive the, the stripes. But he hadn't been tried. He hadn't been found just or, or righteous or he hadn't been found wicked. He hadn't had a trial. He hadn't found either one. And so they'd gone contrary to God's law. God said he had to have a, a just trial first of all. That he had to be heard. He had to be allowed to have a fair hearing. And so they'd gone against the, the very spirit and letter of the law. And that's why Paul responds in anger here. He calls him a white, whited wall or a whitewashed wall. And basically Paul is calling him a hypocrite. That's what he's saying when he bursts out here. He's calling him a hypocrite. He accuses him of having a, a veneer of purity that simply covered over his obvious corruption. He says, you look pure, but you're corrupt on the inside. Again, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's exactly how our Lord described the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees when he called them hypocrites. Just go back to, Acts, uh, to Matthew, sorry, Matthew 23. <clears throat> Matthew 23 and <clears throat> verse 27. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones, 
and of all uncleanness. It's the same idea. Christ says that they're white as sepulchres. Now, in Bible times, the, the tombs were whitewashed. And it was a warning to say that there's dead bones inside. It was a warning so that people wouldn't come in, in contact and be defiled by those bones. And so the, the tombs would look beautiful on the outside, but of course on the inside. They're full of dead men's bones, unclean. And it's the same point here. Paul is saying you're dressed up, you've got a whited wall, but you're not beautiful. You're corrupt. You're full of hypocrisy. And his hypocrisy here was that he was violating the very law that he claimed to be upholding. He goes on and says that. He says, For, for sittest thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten and contrary to the law. He says, you're a hypocrite. You're, you're commanding me to be beaten, saying you're upholding the law, but you're going against the law. They were hypocrites. Going against the very thing they said they were they were, they were judging by the law of God. You know, Paul's sharp rebuke here to the high priest was that God shall smite thee. He said, then, said, then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou white of wall. He says God's going to smite thee. Now he declares that God is going to judge him for his hypocrisy. That's really what he's saying here. And you know, Paul's words ended up being prophetic. God did judge this wicked man, Ananias. Now, Wearsby says this, Ananias was indeed one of the most corrupt men to ever be named high priest. He stole tithes from other priests and did all he could to increase his authority. He was known as a brutal man who cared more for Rome's favor than for Israel's welfare. When the Jews revolted against Rome in the year 66, Ananias had to flee for his life because of his known sympathies with Rome. The Jewish guerrillas found him hiding in an aqueduct at Herod's palace, and they killed him. It was a fitting death for such a despicable man. So in the end, he was killed by his own people. The Jews, they killed him when they rose up against the Romans. They slaughtered Ananias in the midst of all that. He obviously was a horrible person. And this is fitting with his character, his treatment here of Paul. But Paul's words ended up being prophetic. God did indeed smite him. But you know, the question remains here, was Paul right to react with such a sharp rebuke? Was he right to react with such anger at being struck? You know, it seems to go against Christ's call to turn the other cheek, doesn't it? You know, we know that verse. Just go quickly, Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Matthew 5 and, and verse 39. <clears throat> it says, But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Seems to go against that idea, doesn't it? You know, should Paul here have just turned the cheek and let them smite him on the other side? Did he respond in the wrong way here? Well, it seems to me, and indeed most commentators agree, <clears throat> that this was Paul here responding with righteous anger. Righteous anger at the sinful actions of the council. You know, remember how he's been treated by the Romans and he never once has responded with anger. But he responds with anger here and what's his anger at? His anger is at the hypocrisy of the council that's supposed to be upholding the law of God. That's what his anger's at. It's righteous anger here at the sinful actions of the council. It was supposed to be representing God. 
you know, just as Christ himself got angry at sin. You know, Christ got angry when he cleansed the temple, didn't he? Matthew 21, just turn there with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew 21 and verse 12. It says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them, He's read in my house, shall be called the house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And of course, another pastor is speaking of the same thing. He makes a, a whip and he, he chases them out of the temple. Christ there is reacting with anger, righteous anger at the sin. Christ is also angry at the hearts of, sorry, the hardness of the hearts of the religious leaders in Mark chapter 3. Just turn there, Mark 3. <clears throat> Mark 3 and verse 5. It says, And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Here we have Christ, and it says that he looked about on them with anger. Anger at the hardness of their hearts, the fact they wouldn't respond, they wouldn't see the truth. You know, likewise, Christ... You know, was scathing in his rebuke of the Pharisees, wasn't he? We already looked at when he called them a, a whited sepulchre, but he calls them hypocrites, he calls them fools, blind guides, serpents, generation of vipers. Christ didn't mix his words when he was speaking about the Pharisees and their sin. And the point is that anger in and of itself is not a sinful emotion. Now, Ephesians 4 verse 26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. And so it's possible to be angry and not sin. Anger is righteous when it's directed at those things that anger God himself. When it's directed at that which angers God, when it's directed at that which is sin. And that seems to be the case here with Paul. He's reacting to the sin and the wickedness of this council. He's angry with the hypocrisy of these ones who claim to uphold God's holy law. But as we read on in the passage, we see that Paul is quick to apologize when he realizes his mistake. Let's just look lastly now at Paul's apology. Paul's apology. Verse 4, it says, <clears throat> and, they that stood by, sorry, and they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. As we read on, we immediately see that those who stood by are shocked. They're shocked that Paul would speak in such a way to the high priest. You know, they, they say they're revilest now, God's high priest. They're shocked that he would do this. And they basically point out to Paul, they say, you've just reviled or you've just insulted the high priest of God. And Paul is immediately apologetic. You know, in verse 5 it says, Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul is immediately apologetic. When they point out to him that this is the high priest, Paul immediately says, Sorry, I shouldn't have spoken like that about him. You see, the fact that he was the high priest meant that he deserved the respect of the office, the respect due unto the office that he held. Even though he personally was corrupt, he was a sinful man, 
he still held the office of high priest, and therefore Paul had to respect that office. And notice that Paul really apologizes here, not so much for what he said, but for the lack of respect. That's what he is apologizing for. He's apologizing for his lack of respect towards the office of high priest. And Paul quotes from Exodus 22 and verse 28 when he says, For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. He quotes from Exodus 22:28, and he, he basically rebukes himself here, doesn't he? Paul rebukes himself with the word of God for his actions here. He shows immediately and, and, and he humbly acknowledges his mistake, doesn't he? Acknowledges that he did the wrong thing by speaking about this, sorry, speaking about the high priest in this manner. And he says that the reason for his disrespectful actions was that he didn't know it was the high priest. He says, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. Paul says, I didn't know. I didn't realize that he was the high priest. And probably the reason he didn't recognize the high priest is that this meeting was convened so quickly. And so probably the high priest Ananias isn't actually wearing his priestly robes. He's probably not wearing the high priestly garb, and so he doesn't recognize him. You know, it's also been four or five years since Paul was last in Jerusalem. And it's been 20 years or even more since he was actively involved with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. It's been a long time since he was around them. And so it may simply mean that he was unable to recognize the current high priest. He just didn't recognize him. He didn't realize that he was now the high priest. But regardless of the reason, Paul is quick to acknowledge his mistake, isn't he? He's quickly... He's quick to acknowledge his uh, sin in, in not respecting the office. And he humbly acknowledges his mistake with the word of God, rebuking himself. Now, as I considered this first half of this, this hearing here before the, the Sanhedrin, you know, I realized that you know, this whole scene before us is one that you know, ought to remind us of how we should conduct and behave ourselves as believers. Now, we should, like Paul, strive to live with all good conscience before God, shouldn't we? We should strive as believers to live with a clear conscience. Now, the more we're in the Word of God, the more our minds are in light, and the more our conscience will prick us and show us our sin and the spirit within. And we should endeavor to live in accordance with that, with a clear conscience, a good conscience before God and before men, before the law. Now, in other words, we should seek to be honest and without hypocrisy in our lives. That should be the hallmark of the Christian. You know, there's also a place for righteous anger, isn't there? Righteous anger at sin. As Ephesians 4.26, as we said earlier, be angry and sin not. There is a place for anger at sin. You know, the sin in this world should anger us. It should upset us as believers. And we should be willing to boldly speak out against that sin, but at the same time, we need to be respectful towards those who hold positions of authority. We need to be respectful towards our government, don't we? Now, we need to, as believers, show respect unto the office. No matter how corrupt they may be, they still hold the office. You know, Romans 13 speaks about us being subject to the high powers. Let's just turn there as we finish this evening. Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> just want to read a few verses here. <clears throat> in Romans 13 and verse 1 
says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. They are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Now Romans 13 speaks about extensively, doesn't it? This idea of respecting the higher powers, those who are in authority, the governments, respecting their authority, giving honour unto those who deserve honour. That doesn't change the fact that if they go against God's holy word, of course, we've got to obey God rather than the men. But we still have to respect the government. And you know, the reality is that our government is going to make ungodly choices, ungodly decisions. And they do every single day, don't they? You know, right now before New South Wales Parliament, there's the abortion bill. And they're heading towards making an ungodly decision. And we should and we can get angry at that sin. And indeed, the other simple things they brought in. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we do it in a respectful way, don't we? That we respect those who are in authority. You know, the best course of action for us as believers is to pray for our government. Isn't that what 1 Timothy 2, verse 2 says? It says that we are to pray for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and authority. Now, we need to ask the Lord to help us to indeed live with a good conscience, to get angry at sin, but to do it in the right and respectful way. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for once again the example of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, this, this hearing before the Sanhedrin, Lord, his reaction, uh, Lord, to the sin of the council. But Lord, his immediate uh, humble response when he realized his sin in not respecting the office, Lord. And I pray you help us, Lord, to, to learn from this. Lord, help us to seek to live with good conscience before men, before you, before the law. Help us, Lord, to indeed be angry against sin, stand against sin, but help us also to be respectful to those in authority. Uh, Lord, may you bless and may you help us as we depart from this place. May you bless our government at this time. Help them, Lord, to make uh, wise decisions, godly decisions, Lord, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name.